Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Well, again, it's good to be back with you. Thank you again for the opportunity, as you give us most summers, to to take a couple of consecutive weeks and just be with our family together. And I know many of you, if you haven't already taken advantage of that, I hope that you will. I want to say just a a brief word of appreciation as well for for the two Chris's, Pastors Chris Eads and Chris Walls, for filling this pulpit while I'm out and for making sure that the Word of the Lord is, in fact, the star of the show. Uh, It is only the Word of the Lord that transforms hearts. And I'm so thankful to know that when I'm away, uh, I don't have to be concerned that there are people who can fill this role uh, very well, competently and faithfully, uh, and I'm delighted for that. But I love to preach, so I've also uh, been excited to get back here. We're a couple of weeks now into a four-week series entitled Bad Religion, and thus far we've learned a little bit about the, the, the former side of this. We, we, there is what we would call the worst of religious faith. It, it, it seems noble and maybe even moral, but there's an iciness to it. There's a, a legalistic nature to it. And, and, and how do we recognize the contours of that? Because you want to avoid that. It's the very kind of thing that no matter how good it looks, Jesus condemned it. It's full of injustice. Sometimes it's oppression disguised as freedom. Well, today I want to start to switch gears a little bit, and I want to spend the last two weeks of this series answering this question. Since the theme of this series is not just to criticize the bad, but to empower you to overcome the worst of religion with the best of faith. And I get that phrase from a friend of mine named Chris Seipel, who's worked all over the world helping people of faith to to really kind of lift the level of rhetoric and, and, and even the quality of life in the nations and the cultures in which they live and work. Uh, And that's something my friend Chris has always said. I teach people to overcome the worst of religion with the best of faith. So we're going to start looking at the second half of that today. And we're going to ask, what are the primary indicators of a faith that's real? How do you know what's real? And And I say that because it's getting easier and easier to be kind. Don't you think? Like, like across domains of, of existence, it's just getting easier. <clears throat> I teach for a university in my home state that, that requires me about twice a year, and you may work for a company that does this as well, and if you're like me, at first it kind of annoys you because they're throwing something additional on you. You know it's going to take an extra hour of your time. They're not going to pay you any extra for it. They just do this, right? It's called cybersecurity training. And when I used to get these notices, and they would come with, with polite but, but really direct messages, you have so many days to complete this training before we lock you out of everything. Anybody work for a company like that? Okay. I work for a university like that, on, sort of on the side. And, and so, but one of the things I've learned is this is kind of important. It's important because hackers are getting more savvy, aren't they? Some of you have experienced that. Our whole nation experienced that recently. A whole pipeline got locked down and your gas went up 
30 cents a gallon almost overnight, right? Because of hackers. And, and so what happens, even on an educational institution level, they, they get more savvy, they can break through the system, and they can do it through something as simple and seemingly innocuous as a false email that gets sent to an adjunct member of the faculty who lives three states away. But if I do the wrong thing, if I click the wrong link under the, the guise of that website while I'm within the confines of, of secure sites that only I am supposed to have access to, they can do all kinds of malicious things. They can seize secure student records. They can, they can lock down through ransomware stuff that, that threatens critical systems and, and do all kinds of, of harm. And so even though it still is a little bit annoying to me, one of the things I've learned, not just as a member of the faculty, but as a, a member of the larger team at this university, is I have a role to play in making sure that those malicious attacks don't do harm to the institution that I work for. And again, many of you have, have similar kinds of employment agreements, and those are the things that, that you, you've learned. Hey, I've, I've got to do this. But here's the thing. I also get legitimate emails. Fellow faculty, administrators, students, most of the time who haven't read the syllabus, but nonetheless... You know, I, I get email, and, and they, those emails have to be answered. So there's, there's legitimate stuff that happens too. And so for me to do what I need to do, I can't just protect myself from the bad. I have to be able to recognize what's real. And when it comes to faith, sometimes telling the difference between the authentic and the counterfeit, it's not easy. So one of the things I want to try to help you do this morning is through an account in Luke's gospel, uh, about Jesus' encounter, one of his many encounters with the Pharisees is how do you recognize what is real? How do you distinguish uh, bad religion from the best of faith? And, and I think it's only fair to the Pharisees to point out that the Pharisees did not start out as bad guys. And even at this period of time, they were not all bad guys. In fact, if you were to sit a Pharisee from that day, if you were able to, through some time portal or whatever, transport them to the 21st century and put them on this stage, and I were to ask them specific questions about what they believe about Scripture, a lot of their answers would sound like what your pastor believes. A lot of their answers would sound like what many of you would, would believe yourself and would expect your pastors to believe. So they're not all bad guys. They, they started out, in fact, with a very healthy vision, and, and that vision overall was the preservation of Torah. Again, they, they believe just like I do that Scripture is the Word of God, that it has to be preserved, that it needs to be accurately represented, that it needs to be faithfully obeyed. Those are, those are good things, guys, really good things. You know, we're a church that's made up of people from multiple denominational backgrounds. We're a completely autonomous, self-governing body. Uh, we don't look to a particular denomination to guide us in, in anything, but we do have some connection. And on occasion, through a, a membership class or a mission class, someone will ask, and we're pretty open about those affiliations. And, and when they find out that our affiliations are largely Baptist, sometimes it turns people off. And, and I've had a couple of folks even say, man, we love your church, but we just can't be a part of anything that's Baptist. And, and, and I respect that. I understand. I, mean, I don't know their history. I don't know their story. I'm not going to get into the weeds with them on that. Um, but, but typically what that does, and by the way, I've seen that in other things. You know, people come in and they join us because we are connected with those groups. And then other people who come in and go, well, I'm, I'm finally glad to be somewhere that's just not crazy, hanging from the chandeliers. I'll never be a part of another charismatic church. 
I'm finally glad to be in a place where I can lift my hands and be free in my worship. I will never be part of another Presbyterian church. And what we often don't recognize is in all likelihood, it wasn't the label that did that to you. It was just the particular person wearing that label at that time. And we need to look at the Pharisees that way. This, this sect, by and large, was not a bad thing. It wasn't. Most likely the problem wasn't the label, it was the people wearing the label, and some of the members of this sect of Judaism had digressed from that original vision that said we want to preserve the Word of God, and their reverence for the Word of God, same reverence you and I should have for it, had devolved into a false belief that we've, that we've now got to put a hedge around this thing to protect it. Because the Bible, the word of the living God that was here before you were born and will be here after you're gone needs your protection. Right. Right. But that's what they thought. It needs extra protection. The Mishnah, which is basically the first volume of the Talmud, it's like, think of it like a large collection of, of Bible commentaries that our Jewish friends, even to this day, will use, says in Abba 3.14, tradition is a fence around the law. All right? The, the the Pharisees took that seriously. So by the time we get to this point in the gospel, the encounter between Jesus and these Pharisees is quite literally an encounter between the worst of religion and the best of faith. These men, one of them at least, had asked Jesus to dine with them, and the fireworks get set off, as it were, in verse 38. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash his hands before dinner. Now, let's add a little context to this so that you don't think that Jesus was just being nasty, okay? This wasn't about personal hygiene. That wasn't, which, by the way, um, keep washing your hands. And I'm not even just talking about COVID. Like, I'll be honest with you, I was just a little bit grossed out that we had to emphasize that at the beginning of the pandemic, okay? So it's a good thing to wash your hands. Jesus is not emphasizing or telling you that godliness is somehow connected with, with bad hygiene. That, that's not what's happening here. But the Pharisees had allowed themselves to become oppressive with their application of religion. So by the time we get to this point in the gospel, we start to see something. The Mishnah will give us some background to this confrontation. It's a Jewish document that says the following. The hands are susceptible to uncleanness and they are rendered clean, kind of, kind of shortening this for you basically, by the pouring over them of water up to the wrist. This isn't washing your hands to get it clean. This is a ritual washing. This is, a, this is a religious observance. This was a religious concern. You didn't perform the ritual washing, which means we're now all sitting here with a ceremonially unclean man. He's God, but somehow they think he's ceremonially unclean. And Jesus, here's the other side of it. Jesus grew up a faithful Jew. He didn't miss this. He hadn't forgotten about this regulation. This is no accident. This is a calculated, premeditated move on the part of Jesus. And, and, and really, to, to cast this in, in a more understandable way to you, you kind of think about one of the best meals you can ever have at the family dinner table. Back, back at sort of the height of the, the pandemic, Amy uh, started this almost weekly observance with our family that has grown into an almost weekly observance has kind of continued beyond it. it it's, it's, and I've, I've become a huge fan of it. It's called baked potato night. Now, if you don't like baked potatoes or you think, well, baked potato by itself is bland, well, I agree with you. But number one, Mrs. Rainey puts stuff on these potatoes. I don't know. Maybe it's crack cocaine for all I know. I don't know, but it, it's addictive. 
It's addictive. It's bad, and, 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 but it's so, so good, right? And then when you, when you slice it open and it falls out half here, half there, and then you take your fork, as any good observant potato eater will do, and you mash it all up. Because what you really want is mashed potatoes disguised as a baked potato because that's the best kind of baked potato. And then you look up at the center island in our kitchen, you realize Mrs. Rainey has set up a bar, a potato bar, butter, sour cream, cheese, real bacon bits. Did I mention bacon bits? Right? But none of that even, right? Some of y'all are going to be, if you've been a part of the covenant family for a while and you're like, Pastor Joel loves bacon, this statement's going to shock you. That ain't the best part. Let me tell you what the best part is. It's her homemade chili. Boom, right on top of it. I, sometimes I'll have a little baked potato with my chili. I pay for it the next morning. Oh, my gosh, you know. But it, oh, it is oh so good. And I'm like, I can't wait. It's almost like every Sunday I'm like, baby, when's baked potato night? I love it. Now, imagine somebody comes over to your house. I, I know this kind of thing didn't exist in the first century, but so let's, let's imagine that this particular Pharisee had good culinary taste, and he decided Jesus is coming over. I'm going to do baked potato night. And he sets this up exactly like my wife sets it up. And Jesus comes, and he sits down. It's a communal table, and he hasn't washed his hands, ritually or otherwise. And as he sits, you see his uh, kind of a little mischievous gleam in his eye, and he casts that gleam over toward these religious people that he knows are watching him, that he knows are focused on only one thing. It's this little nitpicky ritual thing that he didn't do. And with that realization and a very calculated move, he doesn't grab a spoon. He takes his hand. And he moves toward the chili. Some of you think that's gross. I happen to think there's something quite attractive about that. But I'm a married man, and so I do use a spoon. Okay? He goes over to the bowl. He sticks his unwashed, ceremonially unclean, according to these guys' hands, down in that chili. And he picks it up, and some of the chili's just falling off. The grease is running off. It's just a glorified moment. I mean, all the way across the table until it gets to his mouth where he consumes it for the greater glory of God and the joy of all mankind. <laughs> and then looks back at them as if to say, fellas, this is why I created cows. This is why I created deer, because I knew eventually I was coming, and I wanted to eat me some chili. And they are scandalized by this. Scandalized. This confrontation is about something a lot bigger than Jesus. Jesus is making a much bigger point. He's, he's basically saying to them, look, I... I don't accept your rules. This Torah that you're trying to preserve, I personally inspired it, and you don't get to add to it as if you're somehow on equal ground with me. That's oppressive, and I'm not going to accept that in my kingdom. And then he says the following, verse 39. And the Lord said to them, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside... You're full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who made the outside clean the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean 
for you. This is the difference between bad religion and the best of faith. Bad religion, obsessed with outer appearance. Real faith with an inward reality. Bad religion, concerned with ritual. Real faith with relationship. Bad religion with tasks. Real faith with inward transformation of the soul. And so at the heart of real faith, this is the difficult part, if it's something internal, how do we identify it? Is it just up to our feelings? I mean, how, how do we do this? And so Jesus' response to the Pharisees gives us a negative image in his description of their practices and their dispositions, but it's through that negative image. Some of you are, you're not like Sister Barbara, you're not photographers, kind of like me, and, and you, maybe you're younger and you, you've never lived through a day when, when there wasn't such a thing as this selfie community where everything can be done by phone, right? There was actually a day where you'd take pictures and you couldn't process them yourself. You had to take them to someone who processed them for you. It was a big old pain in the neck, I'm telling you. But that person would take something called a negative image, which is what that camera actually captured, and they would basically flip it. The technology allowed them to change it into the picture that you were trying to capture. I want you to think of it that way. Jesus, in his negative description of what's going on with the Pharisees, is giving us something that we can process and turn into a description of what real faith looks like. And there's three characteristics of it. The first one is this. Real faith produces holistic givers. Verse 42. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe. He doesn't say you don't give. He says you tithe. Mint, rue, and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And so the Pharisees took tithing seriously. There's no sincere Pharisee in history that ever gave a farthing less than 10% than his legal obligation. And we know from history, in fact, you can study it, and, and the synagogues that existed in this day that included a good number of Pharisees They never had money problems. They always prospered financially because those people were very faithful and their giving commitment was to such a level that apparently they tithed out of their splash rack. Everything we've got, we're going to make sure. You know, I got 10 leaves here, and so the Lord's going to get one. I got 10 of this, the Lord's going to get one. That's not necessarily wrong, but the issue is that while on the outside it looked great, I mean, any pastor, admittedly, we like to see this sort of thing, and so Why is Jesus not happy? It's because although they were great givers on the outside, they were miserable failures on the inside because the one thing they would not give was themselves. They wouldn't give of themselves. And the chief evidence of this, which by the way is the chief evidence of the character of any individual or for that matter any culture or any nation, all you had to do was look at how they treated the vulnerable. All you had to do was look at how they treated the poor among them. And you would know where their hearts were. You neglect justice and the love of God. You know, money's a, sometimes it can be a sensitive issue in the church. And the Bible does call on us to to share what God's blessed us with. Scripture commends that the first stop, at least if it's taken as a whole, I think it would say the first stop of your charitable giving should be the the local church because you're giving back to the Lord a portion of what he's blessed you with and together we can do more as a covenant community than we could ever do apart, I believe, in in all of that. But, But when you give with the wrong motivation, it makes you a legalistic giver. Makes you a legalistic giver. 
Scripture tells us our obedience should be motivated, whatever it is, giving or whatever it is, should be motivated by the right heart because if it's not, then either you're going to give out of fear, I'm going to do this because God might zap me. I was meeting with some guys a few nights ago and we were talking about this idea. On the one hand, don't, don't think that God's going to somehow, he's waiting to pounce on you because maybe you're not giving faithfully. On the other hand, uh, don't think that tithing and giving works like a one-armed bandit in Vegas. All right? That's, that's not how giving works. It's not. We did a big giving campaign several years ago here and just challenging people to, to step up. And this is where we're headed together. And I had people sharing all kinds of ways that God had blessed them materially. And then I had a few folks say, you know what? I started tithing as a result of that. And the next day I lost my job. So there's no guarantees here. That's not what this is about. So don't be motivated by fear or by greed. That's, that's to put yourself where the Pharisees are. On the other hand, don't give transactionally. There are other people who treat the church like a business. And, and it, this is what I've learned after my years of ministry. Some of the godliest, most wonderful people who love Jesus more than me even on this planet that I've ever met, they were also very generous givers. But you know what? Some of the meanest people I have ever met were also very generous givers. Yeah. You know the difference? It's motivation. motivation. That's what Jesus is going to here. He says this motivation can be seen when you simply look at how this person in question treats the vulnerable. And by the way, his words here to the Pharisees, perfectly in line with the words of the prophets. I'll just give you one reference here, and it's out of Amos chapter 5, which we've looked at earlier in this series. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And then later on, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And so here's kind of the big idea. Uh, the heart of real faith certainly includes generosity because God's a giver. If you're going to be like him, you need to be a giver. And some of you, by the way, need to hear that today because you have this view, this twisted kind of understanding of God always waiting to zap you, always just, just pounding on you for everything. And you need to know this morning that God we worship is a giver. The God we worship gave his son for you. The God we worship loves you. The God we worship longs to put his arms around you. He's a giver. And he's promised that those who put their trust in him are going to be conformed to his image, which means that people that truly belong to a giving God are not stingy. They're not self-centered with their possessions. But, but scripture is equally clear as is Jesus in this passage, that obedience is not sufficient by itself. Otherwise, it's, it's just an oppressive rule. People with generous hearts like God give of themselves. They seek justice for those less fortunate. They do everything they do because their motivation in giving is holistic and it's focused on the people that God loves and sent Jesus to die for. Real faith will produce people who give holistically. Real faith, secondly, will also produce humility. Verse 43. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. So the most important seats, whether it was in the synagogue or any other public place in the ancient world, they were up front, facing the congregation. 
So it's kind of like the young men and women that we brought up a little earlier. They were standing here and they were facing you. We do that by intention because they are important because this mission they're about to engage on is important. There's nothing wrong with the best seats. There's nothing wrong with the most prominent spots. There is something wrong with lusting for prominence and fame and wanting to be well-known and wanting to be recognized and having that be the sum total of all of your aspirations in life. And that's where the Pharisees were. Guys like me, who just, they won't share their pulpit the way I did the last couple of weeks. They got to have, they got to be at the center of everything. There, there are those kinds of things. Often early in exploring someone's call to ministry, I'll, I'll often ask them about their motivations for this. Because there's a lot of guys in my line of work that really, they're in it for their own brand. When I preached here in view of a call five and a half years, well, almost six years ago now, I learned after the Q&A session that there were a number, two or three, I think, uh, of young men sitting out here, weren't part of covenant, had no desire to be a part of covenant, but they got in wind somehow or another that, that my first action early on was going to be a hire a youth pastor. Now, I don't know how in the world that rumor got out. I honestly have no idea because I never said it. I never intended it. It wasn't true. It, it wasn't, it, for one thing, the church was deeply in debt at the time, uh, all kinds of polarized, siloed ministries. There, were some, there was some bona fide toxicity uh, in our congregation at the moment. We, had, we just had some stuff to work on. And if you're watching from home or sitting here going, wow, boy, that's a lot of dirty laundry. Every single church in the world has dirty laundry. We're just we're just going to be honest about it. We're not going to expose it for the sake of exposing it, but we are going to be honest about who we are and where we come from. That's how we, we demonstrate God's grace in the life of this body corporately. But that's where we were. We didn't have the money to pay a, another full-time pastor. And if we did, I wasn't going to bring that individual into that kind of environment. It would not have been fair to them. It wouldn't have been good for our youth who would have been made to think through an action like that, that, oh, they hired a youth pastor. That means everything's going to get better now. There was some work that needed to be done in the whole church. Nevertheless, the rumor got out. And so I found out that there were some young men here Really didn't have any interest in covenant, but they thought there might be a job posting coming soon. You ever met anybody like that? They like the attention. They like the attention. That's a dangerous person to the body of Christ. I want a job, I want a check, I want a salary. I want someone to call me pastor. I want someone to call me doctor. Dangerous. Dangerous. Because like the Pharisee, that kind of individual doesn't love the church. They want to use it. They kind of want to stand on it. You got to be careful with that thing. Oh, and by the way, ministry types are far from the only kind of people who act this way. All right. If you're a business person, it's totally fine. If your honest, sincere interactions with the body of Christ here at Covenant results in a really sweet deal for you, more power to you. That's wonderful. I think that's fine. I think we got to be careful being oppressive and legalistic. I think when we talk about conducting business with each other in the body of Christ, we got to be careful not to misapply that teaching about the money changers in the temple. Doesn't really fit. 
That's another sermon for another day, but it doesn't really fit. It's fine, and it is actually morally good to conduct business in the house of God, if, in fact, that business is morally good. But if you're a business person or whatever, and your reason for selecting a particular church is nothing more than, well, that's where the contacts are. Well, that's where I'm actually going to be able to make some money. Well, that's where I'm going to find some suckers that will buy into my multi-level marketing scheme. This is the kind of people that Jesus is talking about. I grew up in the deep south where local politicians used the church. In fact, they still do. They still do. And at the root of all this is the same pride that Jesus calls out in the Pharisees. Now, again, prominent seats are not wrong. Titles are not wrong. The scriptures use the title pastor. It's an honorable thing to be a pastor. Scripture commends to give that honor where it's due. But real faith doesn't seek honor. Real faith seeks to serve. In fact, Paul would express it this way in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, this is the essence of real faith. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not, not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. This is the Son of God we're talking about. He came not to be served, he said, out of his own mouth, but to serve by taking the form of a bondservant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. People who follow Jesus, no matter their title or their wealth or their level of authority in the world, they will seek to serve other people in humility. Their passion is not for themselves. It's for the people of God. So real faith produces holistic givers. Real faith produces genuine humility. And now Jesus is going to widen the lens a little bit for us. Real faith, just in general, bears healthy fruit. See, if you want to know the true nature of something, watch what that thing eventually produces. Good trees produce good fruit. Bad trees produce bad fruit or no fruit. Right? These are parables that Jesus taught us. Right? Look at the outcome of a thing. And if it is satanic, it didn't come from Jesus. That's pretty simple, right? If the outcome of a thing is ungodly, then that's the fruit of bad religion. And by Jesus' description of all this, we can see the contrast with the results of real faith. And there, there are four such things that are listed here. The first is, if it's real faith, it's going to bear fruit in concurrence with healthy, natural progress. Verse 44, woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves. And people walk over them without knowing it. A little context here, both Numbers 19 and Leviticus 21 declared graves to be defiling because there's a dead body under there. And so Jews would be very careful to mark graves. Otherwise, somebody would unknowingly walk over the top of one and become defiled, and then they're going to walk into the temple without knowing it, and they're going to defile the temple. And, and this is a gruesome irony when you think about that scenario. G Jews, Jesus, rather, is saying, you Pharisees are so full of spiritual contamination and defilement that this is all people can catch from you. When they're around you, they don't even realize it. All right? The people who listened to them, the people who followed them, got contaminated. They became defiled. And ultimately, if they kept following them, they would become just like them. What's my point? Be careful who you follow. 
Who do you listen to? I mean, really listen to. Um, a lot of guys in my line of work, we've been lamenting, not in a whiny kind of way, but just sort of a, you know, I, I get you for about an hour a week, two to three hours a week if you come on Wednesday nights and you, I get other opportunities to interact with you, maybe a little bit more than that if you're interacting with our leadership and all the media you consume gets 20 plus. I'm fighting an uphill battle. I'm not whining about it. I'm just telling you it's fact. So it's really on you at this point to be careful who you listen to. We live in an age of, of self-discipling. It's almost like self-medicating where people just decide, well, I'm going to listen to this or I'm going to listen to that or that sounds okay and there's not really a local kind of accountability in their life to tell them, hey, that, some of it sounds good. Some of it might even be good, but a lot of it's toxic. Let me point that out to you. Scares me to death how many people are discipled by talk radio. Scares me to death how many people are discipled by polarizing forces in our culture that would tell you that there are enemies in this building worshiping Jesus with you. I got a word for that, but I'm not going to use it in church. Scares me to death that other people would read books written by people that, that sound eerily like Satan in the Garden of Eden saying, has God really said when it comes to things about the way you live your life and who you sleep with and how you spend your money and all those, oh, that's all okay. I'm just going to bless all of your idols. I'm going to do all of your stuff. And you read it and you go, this sounds good. Well, of course it sounds good. Of course it sounds good. It's telling you to go ahead and sin. It's telling you that it'll be okay. That, that's... That's the kind of thing that we have to be very, very careful of. What's the effect of your life and service of Jesus? What's the effect on those things by whoever you're listening to and, and, and whoever you're following? Don't listen to a relativistic culture that tells you that everything is fine in life. You'll end up immoral. You'll end up excusing sin, participating in it. You'll end up addicted. Don't listen to people that are constantly scratching your itching ears telling you that there's no need to repent on your part. It's all those other people out there. They're the ones. They're the ones that think differently or behave differently or make different choices to you because you're going to end up mean as hell just like those people you listen to. And that's not godly either. Real faith, when it's infused to me through another, doesn't bear that kind of fruit. It speaks the truth, but it moves you farther down the road of becoming like Jesus. It's progress. The second thing it does is it, it empowers leaders. Verse 46, and he said, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear. And you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. In other words, bad religion weighs you down. Bad religious leaders love to always throw weight in your direction. Charles Haddon Spurgeon used to say, absolutely, we should preach about hell, but if you can do it without sobbing, you are not qualified to talk about it. It's one thing to talk about the truth. It's another thing to, to have compassion on other people and not take great delight in always pressing other people down. Real faith produces leaders that empower. Bad religion just wants you to obey. 
Real faith wants obedience because it's for your good. So don't just ask yourself, who am I listening to? Ask yourself, what do those people want from me? Because everybody, I, I promise you this, everybody wants something. What do they want from me? Real faith will produce leaders who want you to make progress in your growth in Christ and want to empower you in your faith. They may not always get it right, but you can, you can sense their heart for you. Number three, real faith honors truth over tradition. Verse 47, woe to you for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. In other words, you, you come in here feigning respect for the prophets of old, like you're standing on what they are doing. You even build tombs for them while simultaneously your actions and your words and the way you treat others and the fruit you produces murders their message. Murders their message. Your fathers literally murdered them, and now all of your actions are, are designed to ensure that their message stays unheard and stays dead. Bad religion seems committed to the word of God, in other words, until you get really close and you realize they're just using it to prop up tradition. That's all they're doing. Real faith honors the truth of God's word, even if it conflicts with tradition. And finally, real faith does not weaponize faith. Verse 53, as he went away from there, the scribes and Pharisees, all right, so Jesus is done. He's made his correction. He's walking away. What's the response? The scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things. Look at this motive. Lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Gotcha journalism is not new. And then he told them, he already told them in, in verse 52, you've taken away the key of knowledge. You keep God's truth from his people and, and you use it to control them. Their response to that truth was to try to control Jesus, which means every point, every question they asked from that point forward had an agenda behind it and that agenda was to trap him. We have people in the network of churches that we're aligned with right now. Come to the, we have a semi-annual business session you're going to be encouraged by all the things that God is doing. We really don't have anything to vote on or act on this afternoon after the 11 o'clock service, but you ought to be here. We're going to rejoice in a lot of stuff. But I'm also going to be very honest with you about our current relationship with the Southern Baptist Convention because there's a group within the convention that continues to stir dissension. They continue to try to micromanage and oppress local churches over whom they have no authority, telling them what needs to happen in all these sort of micromanaging ways and you can watch the way they react. The convention, by and large, about three weeks ago, overwhelmingly rejected their message. And you know what they're doing now? The very same thing the Pharisees doing with Jesus. They're lying in wait. They're catching people with any little thing they can find. They're hypercritical about everything. That's what bad religion does. It takes faith and it treats it like a weapon to be used against other people. Real faith doesn't do that. The fruit, the natural output of real faith, honors the core of God's commands. And it's simple. Love God and love other people made in his image, right? That's what it goes back to. Love God, love your neighbor. And yes, life is complicated. And yes, love sometimes requires 
disagreement and hard conversations. No, love is not full affirmation of anything and everything someone chooses to do. But bad religion deals oppressively with people. Real faith loves them. Real faith seeks the good of the other person. And so that's the question. Do you, do you have the real thing? There's a story that comes out of the Spanish Renaissance, so this several hundred years ago now, and sculptors would actually put these different pieces together for, for sale, and, and sometimes they'd get a little careless, and when they did, there'd be a chip, sometimes even a little hole that would come in that sculptor. And so a lot of sculptors determined that they could use this sort of paste that was called cera, C-E-R-A, and they could wiggle it in. Think about Bondo in a car. Think about you know mud and drywall that maybe you've accidentally punched a hole through, something along those lines. That's what this pearly wax was to, to stuck stone and other kind of sculptures. And so they would, they would put that in there. And if you were in a merchant shop, there was no way you could tell whether or not a, a, a sculptor had done that. There was really only one way, and that was to take it, ask permission of the merchant to take it outside, hold it up against sunlight. You could see every hole. The sun, well, they, they used to say sunlight is the best disinfectant, right? Shining light on things is a good thing. Hold it up. That light starts to come through. And you can tell. And so sculptors who were careful, sculptors who were honest, sculptors who wanted to, people to know that I, I, don't, I don't play those games with you, I'm not going to sell you something defective, they started putting something on the bottom of their creations. It was a Latin phrase, sin, Sarah, without wax. Hundreds of years later, you and I use a word that etymologically had its origins from there. It's the word sincere. I'm real. I'm real. I got no wax. That's the question Jesus is asking. That's the, the question Jesus is challenging the Pharisees with. Are you sincere? Are you without wax? How do you tell the difference? At the end of the day, do the followers of a particular faith, do they love God? Do they love other people? The Pharisees didn't love other people, and I'm going to tell you why. It's because they didn't love Jesus. That may be the decision some of you need to make, be made today. Pastor Jack read the rest of this passage on into chapter 12 that reminds us nothing is hidden that will not be revealed. All that wax one day, the sun, it's going to pierce through every bit of it. If you're playing the game, God's going to pull the cover off of that one day. Our friend Dan Dorner, who consults with us on, on a number of occasions, has said that the person you are right now, when nobody else is looking, especially if you're fake, that person that you are when nobody else is looking, that person that nobody sees, that person whose character has not been, that's going to be the person everybody in the world sees the nanosecond God decides it's time. Nothing is hidden that will not be revealed. Nothing is in secret that will not be made known. And, and for some of you, maybe the greatest thing you need to do today is enter into real faith for the very first time by recognizing I've been playing the game and it's time for me to lay down all of my fakery and all of my legalism and all of my nasty or all of my permissiveness and all of my immorality and all the things that I've convinced myself God said it was okay and you need to repent of all of that, and you need to come to Jesus. And here's the good news. He loves you. He says these things not because he's trying to come down on you, because he wants you free from damnable, bad, oppressive religion. Would you come to him today? Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, thank you for the, the words of Jesus that remind us of our obligation to him, but also, Lord, of the fact that on the one hand, you expect not just obedience, but a heart that is motivated by the right things. And on the other hand, you provide exactly that heart. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed. The new has come, Lord. And I just pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, whether it's folks sitting in this room or whether it's folks watching me from home right now, that, that you would begin to transform hearts, that you would fulfill on an individual basis the promise of Jeremiah that you would take out of those people a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh, that you would put your fear in them so that they will not turn away. Father, transform them by the power of the gospel. May they come today and may they repent of their sins and may they trust in Christ. And Lord, for the rest of us, may we be wary, may we be mindful, may we not be hypercritical, but Father, through your word, give us the power of your spirit to discern the difference between the worst of man-made religion and the best of what you give us. That gift in Ephesians 2, which is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, that gift called faith. Father, I pray that you would bestow that upon many today, and I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.